let me first reintroduce myself. I'm Martin Sullivan, I'm director of the National Portrait Gallery. Uh, we, as you know, have weekly face-to-face -face programs, uh, many of which are presented by my colleagues on the staff, uh, curators, historians, uh, other members, volunteers, docents, uh, experts from uh, the Washington area and beyond. I love doing these not only because it's fun to look at a portrait of an intriguing human being and attempt to decipher something of their personality, their individuality uh, through an image, uh, as well as the impact of that person's life on ours, um, but also because it's a chance to dig a little bit and learn some things that perhaps I didn't know, uh, and hopefully in tonight's program we'll all discover uh, some new things about Barry Goldwater. So, as Ian mentioned, I actually did have the privilege of knowing Barry Goldwater uh, for about the last eight or ten years of his life uh, when he was in retirement and living in the Phoenix area in Arizona, which was his home. Uh, and so some of what I can share with you will be personal. But I also want to extract a little bit, if I can, kind of where we're all coming from in terms of, of this guy, Barry Goldwater, um, uh, an American whose name and legacy are probably receding a little bit into our national consciousness by now, uh, but who certainly was an important figure in the 1960s and through the 1970s and 1980s. So, let's just test ourselves for a second. Uh, let's just throw out what, whatever random ideas and, and memories come to mind. So, what were Barry Goldwater's distinctions? Anybody, jump in. He ran for president. Ran for president in? LBJ. Against LBJ in what year? Uh, 64. Four, good. And this portrait that we're looking at by Bernard Safran, which was a Time magazine cover, came from the issue of July 12, 1964, shortly after Barry Goldwater had uh, won a surprising, narrow but surprising, victory over Nelson Rockefeller in the California primary, which pretty much sealed up the Republican nomination in 1964. What else do we know about him? What state is he from? Arizona. Oh, wonderful memory. Yes, his acceptance speech at the Republican National Convention in '64 in San Francisco uh, was famous, or perhaps notorious, uh, for uh, that phrase that he uttered: "Extremism in the defense of liberty is no vice," and he tempered that by saying moderation in the pursuit of liberty, moderation in the pursuit of justice uh, is no virtue. I'm not quite sure exactly what he was saying there, but the extremism word was the hot button on that particular thought. Any other things that we remember about him? What was, yeah? Is it an urban legend that he was among the Republican Party elders that went to Nixon? It is not an urban legend. One of the things that gave me shivers down my spine was him uh, telling that yarn about he and Senator Hugh Scott from Pennsylvania and Congressman John Rhodes, also from Arizona, who was a leader in the House, uh, got in a car and went over to the White House on an August 
seventh, I guess it was, 1974, and went to see the president and said, uh, Mr. President, you don't have the support of the Congress any longer, uh, and it may be in the interest of the country for you to consider resignation. That's, that's absolutely the case. Uh, and a remarkable moment in American history because here are three stalwarts of the president's own political party basically saying, move on. That's very good. Anything else we remember about him? Well, let me pose a couple of, of questions to get a little bit of access. Um, he was known as Mr. Conservative, wrote a very famous book in 1960 called The Conscience of a Conservative, a very widely read uh, and caught the attention of lots of folks in the United States. Um, in the Senate, uh, which he entered the same year as John Kennedy uh, in 19... No, he didn't. He came two years early. He, he got to the Senate in 1950. In the Senate, he had three big causes. Anybody want to think what kinds of causes would be on the, minds of, uh, on the mind of Senator Goldwater? Well, he was a strong anti-communist. Uh, he really believed that the communist menace emanating from Russia was going to take down the world. In fact, we have over here a time cover of Senator Joseph McCarthy uh, of McCarthyism notoriety. Uh, and Barry Goldwater in the Senate was one of the few senators who stood with McCarthy uh, and refused to vote in favor of the censure motion after it became clear that Senator McCarthy was defaming innocent people. Uh, so anti-communism was one of his crusades. Um, any others come to mind or that would be logical? Well, in general, yes. I mean, he was a conservative. He had one particular thing about government, and that is uh, he was uh, anti labor unions, uh, but particularly and vigorously against what was widely seen as corruption in the American labor movement. And he came to that view because of his own background. Um, Senator Goldwater was a native of Arizona. He may have been the only, I think he was, the only presidential candidate in the 20th century born in a territory that was not yet a state because he was born in 1909, and Arizona did not become a state until 1912. But he was really deeply rooted in the Southwest and in Arizona. Um, his family ran the most prominent and successful department store in the city of Phoenix, Goldwater's. Now, Barry's background is very interesting in that regard. His father's family was Jewish. Uh, in fact, his uh, maternal grandparents, uh, his grandfather was named Goldwasser originally, uh, and, uh, and his maternal, uh, paternal uh, grandmother was also Jewish. They were married in the Great Synagogue in London and emigrated to San Francisco. Um, Barry Goldwater's mother, on the other hand, was not Jewish. She was a descendant of... Roger Williams, the founder of Rhode Island and the great nonconformist of the 17th century. So here are two very interesting, uh, and Barry himself was uh, an Episcopalian. That's, uh, he didn't go to church often, but he was enrolled as an Episcopalian. So 
Anyway, that was his background. How's that connected to labor unions? As a small business owner, uh, he dealt with a lot of labor unions. He saw the corruption that the Teamsters Union scandals in the 1950s uh, was about. And in that respect, he was allied with Senator John F. Kennedy and Robert Kennedy, who was chief counsel uh, to uh, the Senate Labor Committee uh, dealing with rackets. Uh, and the third of the uh, issues that Barry Goldwater became affiliated with um, uh, strikes us today as an anomaly, but it had a lot to do with his campaign in 1964. He did not vote for the famed Civil Rights Act of 1964. He voted against it. And he voted against it on two grounds, both of which were sincere. Uh, there was no political showmanship involved. One, he thought that the federal government was overstepping the area of states' rights. And the other really comes from the libertarian side of him more than the conservative side. He felt that issues of race and ethnicity in a country like the United States could only be resolved by people valuing, appreciating, and getting along with each other, that laws... Uh, could only go so far, and he felt that the Civil Rights Act, as it had been drafted, went too far. Um, what did that get him in 1964? It got him uh, the five states other than Arizona where he got a majority. He got creamed by Lyndon Johnson, as you may remember. Um, but he did take the five states of the Deep South, and it was on that civil rights uh, question uh, that, that he got it. Um, the thing I've been pondering since uh, Ian invited me to come and talk about Barry Goldwater is if he were here today, I mean, he died in 1998, the age of 89, but if he were here today, what would Barry Goldwater think of the Tea Party movement? And what would the Tea Party movement think of Barry Goldwater? Um, and I want to sort of st stitch together some personalities and see if we can find some answers to that. Well, first of all, how did Barry Goldwater from Phoenix get to the United States Senate in 1950? Prior to that election, his political career had been brief and, and very obscure. He was elected to the Phoenix City Council in 1947. He served for three years as a city councilman, and in 1950, coming out of nowhere, he defeated the incumbent Democratic Senator who was also the majority leader of the United States Senate, Ernest McFarland. This is like Sharon Angle and Harry Reid today, okay, almost. I mean, let's leave the ideology aside. He came out of nowhere. Uh, now, 1950 was sort of a good year for Republicans. Uh, the Korean War had just started. There was a lot of frustration with the Truman administration. It was the midterm. Uh, but that's how he got in uh, to the Senate. Um, who were some of his allies and who were some of his enemies? Uh, when he succeeded in getting the 1964 presidential nomination for the Republican Party, the establishment was aghast. And I want to go back to the portrait uh, because we're looking at uh, his triumphant moment. He has won the all-important California primary. Uh, in July of 1964. He will be the nominee against 
Lyndon Johnson, who, of course, had just come to the presidency after the assassination of JFK. So in the portrait, uh, we see what? Let's, let's sort of pick out some of the elements here. Uh, does this look like a warm, fuzzy, uh, joke-cracking kind of fella? Not so much. Uh, what does he look like instead? Hard guy. Okay. And, you know, these days in uh, pretty much every kind of campaign setting, when there's a backdrop that the uh, TV cameras will focus on, it's the kind of wallpaper that has little symbols and so forth. Well, this is 1964, and the artist, Bernard Safran, has got his own kind of wallpaper going on here. And what are they? They are little gold elephants, right? Gold Republican Party emblems. And one of them's carrying a banner saying, A-U-H-2-O, gold water, which was on bumper stickers everywhere. Oh, was it? Yeah. How many of us remember that? I do. <laughs> uh, it, was a, it was a unique time. Um, here's another interesting uh, connection uh, politically and to today. When Goldwater won the California primary right before his portrait went on the cover of Time magazine, uh, people were genuinely surprised and shocked. The media and the pollsters were stunned. Uh, who was he up against? Nelson Rockefeller, one of the richest men in America, had a superb political machine, well-oiled, treated the media like princes, uh, had sophisticated East Coast sensibilities, uh, seemed like just the obvious choice to get, go up against uh, Lyndon Johnson, the interloper, you know, the, the crude, uh, tall Texan who twisted arms to get things done. Uh, and most of the pollsters were predicting an overwhelming Rockefeller victory in California, as was the media, who regarded him as a wild man. But guess what? He won. And how did he win? He won the way Barack Obama won in 2008 by grassroots organizing at the neighborhood level. It's before the era of the internet, but neighborhood clubs, block clubs, uh, women who liked his personality, his straightforwardness, his westernness, uh, all of those things were instrumental. Uh, and just as JFK in 1960, uh, attracted swarms of young women who uh, kind of fell, fell head over heels for this gorgeous, dashing, romantic figure. Barry Goldwater got a lot of that treatment as well, and there were Goldwater girls, uh, uh, clean, well-dressed young women. Uh, guess who was a Goldwater girl? Hillary Clinton, right? Hillary Clinton. Yes, her first stab at politics. Um, so the, the victory there was a surprise. And in the world media, it was a stunner. Uh, there uh, were editorials in London, in Paris, in Frankfurt, in Scandinavia, and so forth. This man is ignorant. This man is stupid. This man is dangerous. Uh, how can the United States be that short-sighted, and so forth? So that's the context in which this portrait is done by a man, Bernard Safran, who did over 70 time covers in his career, 
was, and we have 36 or 37 of them in, in the uh, portrait gallery collection, um, who, um, born in Brooklyn, East Coast oriented and so forth, um, didn't get Goldwater. Uh, and in the brief period of his exposure to him, I think, formed an impression uh, similarly harsh to the kind of European impression that Goldwater was just a guy who would get in your face and maybe was just a little bit wild. Um, but of course, Goldwater went on to win the nomination, and although he lost, several things happened. This is where the chain of politics gets so fascinating. Uh, first of all, who's his logical heir? It's the guy who gave the galvanizing speech, other than Goldwater's acceptance, at uh, the Republican convention, Ronald Reagan. Wasn't then a politician. Gave a barn burner of a speech, all of a sudden it's Reagan, Reagan, Reagan. Okay, so George Will once wrote that the real uh, electoral count from the election of 1964 didn't happen until 1980, meaning that the Reagan revolution had its seed right there. Um, but who are some of the other figures? Well, the counsel, the lawyer for the Goldwater campaign was a guy that he knew uh, very well in Phoenix, a guy named William Rehnquist. Okay, familiar name, becomes Chief Justice. Uh, and one of his Goldwater girl volunteers in Phoenix is a young housewife and lawyer named Sandra Day O'Connor. Yeah. yeah, right. So there's a lot, of, a lot of connection going on there. Uh, well, Goldwater got defeated. He had to sit out a few years uh, because he had resigned from the Senate to run for president. And he comes back and wins again in 1968 and serves in the Senate from 1969 to um, 1986, 87, uh, when he retires. And during that period of time, Goldwater's image softens a whole lot. Uh, he's no longer the crazy Western radical, you know, uh, nuke the commies. He, he did once say in public that he'd love to lob a nuke down into the men's room of the Kremlin. Uh, it's a little bit like Ronald Reagan's later uh, uh, loose lips uh, sort of talk. But, um, but Goldwater softened, uh, became much more a part of the way the Senate operated. Probably his distinctive contribution as a legislator was in co-sponsoring 1986 legislation that gave the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff immense power uh, over all of the branches of the military. Up until then, the Joint Chiefs were just sort of an administrative arrangement, and each branch, the Army, the Navy, the Air Force, et cetera, had, the Marines had their own great power. So that begins to change, and Goldwater had a lot to do with that. Barry Goldwater, by the way, had a lot of other attributes. Uh, during the Second World War, he was activated uh, from reserve status and flew a lot of missions, basically ferrying uh, bombers uh, from the United States across uh, the Atlantic to Africa and then on to uh, China, Burma, India theater. And so he did a lot of flying. In the course of his career in the reserves, he, A, he attained the rank of Major General in the United States Air Force, and B, uh, he, he learned to fly and frequently did fly uh, 
over 160 different kinds of military aircraft. It's kind of amazing when you think about it. It was just one of his great passions. Uh, so that was Goldwater in those years. Fast forward to when I got to know him in the 1990s, and at that time, uh, I was living in Phoenix, and I was director of a museum of Native American culture and art, the Heard Museum. One of the great prizes in our collection uh, was the assemblage that Barry Goldwater had personally made of kachina dolls, carved cottonwood figures that are integral to the lifeways and religious beliefs of the Hopi Indian people. And uh, Barry had a fine collection, which he had assembled personally, uh, directly from native carvers and from trading posts that he visited and so forth. Uh, was one of his many interests. Uh, another great interest was photography. Uh, he's a, really a super photographer. Uh, and ham radio. This guy was about 14 years old on many levels. When I used to visit him at his house, he, in his office, at giant plate glass windows overlooking the whole valley of Phoenix, the valley of the sun, uh, and a big telescope so that he could zero right in on the runway at Sky Harbor Airport and look at the planes taking off and so forth. Uh, eight or nine uh, ham radio receivers that he had built himself from kits uh, lining the walls. Just, just an amazing uh, human being and individual. Um, influence in politics, back to that thread of, of, of who affects whom. Uh, in Arizona, when Barry Goldwater retired from the Senate, his seat became open. And who got elected into it? Does anybody remember? John McCain. John McCain. They didn't get along all that well. John McCain was a newcomer, and he was Navy. Uh, and worse, he was a Navy flyer, and Barry was an Air Force flyer, and that was just not going to happen. Um, so they were different camps, I guess. But the real uh, change that people saw in Barry Goldwater in his later years was that he became uh, much more uh, libertarian in his views. Um, he, he used to vociferously uh, critique the religious right in the Republican Party. He said, you're going to kill the Republican Party more than the Democrats are. Uh, Jerry Falwell, in 1981, came out against the nomination of Sandra Day O'Connor to the Supreme Court, saying every God-fearing Christian should oppose this. And Barry Goldwater, who was actually still a sitting senator at that point, said, uh, no, he's got it the wrong way around. Every God-fearing uh, Christian ought to kick Jerry Falwell in the, in the ass, if you'll excuse the phrase. <laughs> he was fairly firm about that. As a libertarian, he was also in favor of several things that the religious right uh, opposed strongly. Uh, one was women's right to abortion, uh, the, the choice movement. Barry's wife, Peggy, was the longtime president of Planned Parenthood of Arizona, and that may have been an influence on him. But it was partly his political belief that that's within a woman's uh, uh, rights uh, and not for the state to tamper and not for the federal government uh, to tamper in. Another, interestingly, was the issue that arose in the Clinton presidency, don't ask, don't tell, gays in the military. And uh, he famously said on that occasion, you know, to be a good soldier, uh, you don't have to be straight. You just have to shoot straight. And that got a lot of attention. Uh, and the, he and the Clintons actually had a pretty good relationship as, as uh, time went on. 
So he was a man of many contradictions. I want to just touch a little bit on Bernard Safran and the portrait. Um, Safran obviously did a lot of work for Time magazine. Uh, he uh, went to the Pratt Institute in Brooklyn. He was a very serious student uh, of the, the great old masters. Uh, and in particular, uh, he admired the work of Rubens, uh, the great artist Rubens. And the black background that you see on this portrait of Barry Goldwater is very characteristic of uh, a technique that Rubens had developed, uh, basically with burned oil, cooking oil, as a uh, component uh, to the uh, paints that, that he administered. Um, Saffron uh, was also a great admirer of the classic American illustrators. That's what he wanted to be. Uh, he tried different modes of artistic expression. Uh, and both in his high school and at Pratt, he was in the company of some people who went on to be distinguished American artists. Uh, but the ones he gravitated to were the illustrators, including in his high school class, the three guys who together went on to found Mad Magazine. It was that era, kind of a, uh, a crazy time. Uh, but Saffron had to work very quickly, and that was one of the reasons that time employed him a great deal, because they often chose their covers only a couple of days before they had to go to press. And so he cranked out uh, a number of these images very quickly. And he looked for the distinguishing characteristics. In the, in the case of Goldwater, um, he got several things correctly from my point of view, uh, one is those trademark heavy horn-rimmed glasses, which were in vogue in the 1960s, uh, and which other politicians wore. But they kind of um, they gave the fierce Westerner a little bit more uh, scholarly, urban, tamed uh, sort of look, if you will. Uh, I know this can't get on our blog, but I couldn't resist bringing along a very different cover from Life magazine from about the same period, which is the, the Goldwater that Barry himself saw him as, and namely the Western cowboy with his horse, Sonny, uh, and, uh, and, and that, you know, the square-jawed, tough, muscular kind of fella. Uh, and that was, that was Barry's Walter Mitty. That's who we really liked to be. Um, and then the other thing is just the, the composition of the portrait. Um, the sitter is not looking at us. He's looking at something. What is it? The condition of the nation that troubles him? The future that he's trying to articulate from us? Whatever. He's trying to direct our attention to a vision or a set of ideas, uh, which is exactly uh, what his leadership of the conservative mo movement attempted to do. Um, and it's a somber uh, sort of, of thing. Um, in person, the remarkable thing about Barry Goldwater uh, was his eyes. Very blue, very bright, and very focused. And so he's kind of hiding behind them with those glasses uh, and not looking away from us. You don't know, well, who is this fellow? What is, you know... What is he sharing with us here? But more important, what is he concealing? What does he not want to, us to know about him? So I will pause because I'm sure some of you have thoughts or questions. Um, we can talk some more about him. For a man who lost the presidency so decisively, I guess my summing up thought is you never know. <laughs>
because his influence continued to affect American life and politics you know, far beyond the period in which he was a household name. I don't know that he did. Uh, he, in his home, uh, he didn't have an ego wall, and I don't recall any portraits of himself in his home. When he was in the Senate, his office probably had some of them, and I just don't know about this one. He was on the cover of Time in 1964 at least three, maybe four separate occasions, so there were other representations of him. Other questions? He expressed one regret, which is so fascinating. It belongs in the what-ifs of history. He really admired and liked Jack Kennedy. They were colleagues in the Senate. They disagreed politically on a lot of things, but they got along extremely well. And Kennedy couldn't wait to campaign against Barry Goldwater in 1964. He was pretty sure he'd win, which was a great relief. But he also enjoyed Goldwater, and they even talked a bit about the idea of barnstorming together and doing debates in different cities together. Uh, and so he was grief-stricken when uh, Kennedy was assassinated. He did not like Lyndon Johnson at all, thought he was untrustworthy, and he thoroughly detested Richard Nixon, uh, both before and after the Nixon presidency. Um, he made a comment after his decisive loss in that presidential election saying two things. First of all, he, he doubted when he got into it that the country was ready for a third president within 14 months. A very perceptive remark, and that's what it would have been. Uh, and he also said he wasn't going to change himself, uh, and uh, he didn't think that even getting Abe, Abe Lincoln out of the grave to campaign for him would have made any difference in that election uh, you know, for a lot of reasons. Uh, and maybe another thought on that. You know, today in politics, there is so much uh, focus on who's giving money to whom, the PACs, the corporate lobbyists, and this and that and the other thing. Um, Barry Goldwater was a man of great personal honesty and integrity. Uh, he didn't have any of that. He had small campaign contributions, and during the 64 campaign, he got the usual you know, from the establishment of the Republican Party. Um, but he was also against things like earmarks. Uh, I know that for a fact because I went to him trying to get an earmark for the Heard Museum <laughs> as soon as I arrived there. And he said, I don't do those. That was it, you know. Um, unlike Senator McCain and others who had gotten themselves into that business. So he was of a different breed, of a different time. His eyes used to mist up when he would talk about his love for Arizona. It was really remarkable. Uh, I mean, this is a crusty old coot. Uh, the, the names he would call people or the non-politically correct language he would sometimes use, you would go, stick to the script, Barry. But, but when he talked about his home state, it just really, that was from within. That was a very personal affection that was lifelong. Any other questions? Okay, all right. Thank you very much. <laughs>